All right. Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 70, and another contemplative conversation today with a guest of great honor, Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Welcome, Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Thank you so much, Alex, for inviting me to your show. It's, uh, it's my pleasure and an honor to be on it. Well, it's the honor. It's an honor to have you. And um, just like back in graduate school, I considered you a sort of a preeminent man. Well, uh, I'm glad to see that your preeminence is spreading its influence throughout the world and now into Texas, where you are vice principal at, I believe it's a charter school, right? That's correct. And I'm a principal of uh, both a school in Dallas and Mesquite. It's uh, a small classical school. So we do something somewhat similar to what we do at uh, St. John's. Uh, where we introduce the students to the great books. All right. Well, terrible work, terrible work. You know, we hate the great books on this show. And um, (laughs) well, before we get serious, I have to ask a question that all of our friends, and I'm sure everybody who's going to be listening to this, uh, has this question on the the tip of their lips, on the edge of their tongue, is are you at this very moment, Mr. Oscar Ortiz, wearing a bow tie? (laughs) Um, well if i say yes um, i'd be lying if i say no i would be um, disappointing a lot of the listeners i i I suspect Um, well it's a good thing i'll just uh, leave it up in the air for uh, yeah 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 Yeah, some some questions better left unanswered and so so i'm glad to finally have you on so you're so you're one of the you're the only one of our friends at this, at this moment, who graduated from our program in St. John's, focuses on the great books and the classics and brings together a very eclectic uh, group of people with mm-hmm. certainly a family resemblance, not a proper set. Um, but you're the only one that's gotten into administration. And I guess mm-hmm. just to start off this concentration, I, I, might, I might ask, because I do know that you have some additional constraints on you and not constraints in a bad way so much as factors to consider, like your wonderful wife, Natalie, and your... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, last time I checked, two children. How many are there now? Um, yes, two children. <laughs> two, two children. And uh, so I was wondering what, it, because we were talking before we got on the phone about education and keeping good teachers, and particularly keeping male teachers, which we both know from the book, um, mm-hmm. Why Men Earn More by, um, um, what is his name, uh, Warren Farrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's, it's difficult to keep males in the teaching profession, and we were sort of trying to understand why. But because I know you love education so much and you wanted to lead this conversation with a conversation about Herodotus, in fact, yes. I, I'm sure we will be getting there, is um, how, how is it that you came to choose administration? I know you'd been in the classroom for some time, yes. um, but what, what, led, what were the factors that led to you becoming a principal, a first man of a school? Yeah, well, it's, um, it was a mixture of fortune, um, I guess, accident and a predisposition of um, my own character to want to be uh, serve others in the, in the capacity of a leader. Um, what drove me to education um, in the first place was a desire to want to live the intellectual life. So um, it's what drove me to St. John's. It's what uh, drove me to the University of Dallas, which is a small little uh, liberal arts school, Catholic school here in, in Irving, Texas. Um, and it's what ultimately um, decided for me that I should go into the field of education. Uh, once there, um, I realized that I had a knack for uh, teaching teachers how, or coaching teachers how to become good or better at their craft. And, and I think that was, uh, that was noticed by the administration that I was working under. And I, uh, pretty quickly, I think it's, um, it's unusual to see uh, kind of a rapid transition from a teacher to 
to administration, um, pretty quickly I was moved up the ranks and uh, now I'm the principal uh, or what we, the term we use is a headmaster. Um, now I'm the headmaster for two schools and um, I'm very happy where I am. Uh, hopefully my teachers are happy too. And if they're listening, <laughs> they, they could corroborate by nodding that uh, I've been a good, a good headmaster, I, I hope. Well, that's something I'm very interested in. There are a couple of things. I, I want to talk about the distinction between uh, a, a principal and a headmaster and the sort of philosophical underpinnings of the distinction between those terms. But also, um, there's something that from the Steve Jobs movie, Steve Jobs says he does when in a conversation with Steve Wozniak, the creators of Apple. Mm-hmm. And he says, he says, I don't play any specific instrument. I play the crowd or not the crowd but i play the symphony itself i play each one of the musicians he coordinates them on sort of a zeus or cosmic like fashion and so i wondered if as a leader what a leader is what you embody there is is um that you try and bring out of the teachers what the teachers try to bring out of the students and that you Yes, no, I absolutely have to agree with you on that. Um, there's, there are several levels of leadership. I think that um, talking about it abstractly, um, leadership is, is somewhat of a symbol. And um, I, find, I find myself very much, and going back to uh, your, one of your favorite um, great minds, which is Carl Jung, uh, I always found myself attracted to the idea of the king or of the sun and the rays extending over the land and having some kind of um, procreative um, power uh, over things. And um, that symbol was uh, kind of appealing to me. It's always been appealing to me, not, not for the reason that um, I think I thought of myself as um, lording it over people, but as in bringing some form of life forth from the chaos, if you will. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, um, it's one of those symbols that is kind of difficult to actually um, try to distill <laughs> in a short well, conversation. But. Yeah, well, that's interesting because it's as if you're, you find all the players. You don't create the instruments nor Correct. the players, mm-hmm. nor do you necessarily write the music nor mm-hmm. choose the songs. But what you do is you teach them all to play together in mm-hmm. harmony. So it's as yeah. if what you have to embody which is very interesting about your, your, you know, robust family that I know you care very deeply mm-hmm. about is that Correct. it seems like to think in platonic terms. And I love to think of Plato because we find ourselves here in a dialogue, which I find in uh, agreement with Plato is my natural form or my natural theater of investigation. And I think it's the same with you as well. Um, that it seems the form you have to embody is that of harmony or, yes. or, or the, the guiding, invisible, uh, but benevolent hand. And that it's almost as if you, like an umpire, when you're doing your job correctly as an administrator, Correct. are not receiving any praise at all, but mm-hmm. are simply getting uh, a limited amount of complaints. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, to go back to the symbol of the sun, I think what I was trying to draw out from it is that it creates the conditions by which um, all all the other organisms and living forms uh, can can thrive, and I think that's what it's that aspect of caring for my teachers, that aspect of serving and and making sure that there aren't any obstacles in their ways to be successful educators, and making sure that they're they're getting the development that they need to be able to thrive as, as human beings, 
so that then they can go ahead and model that to their students. Um, that's really what's so appealing to me and what drew me to the role of leadership. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I, every day, and, and I'm talking about myself here, I don't recall a day, maybe once or twice uh, in my 33 years, where I actually went out and, and said I was grateful for the sun. In fact, I've cursed the sun for the heat. The sun uh, seems to get much more complaints than gratitude. <laughs> that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not in any way saying that my teachers are in that way. I think my teachers have actually been very good about um, uh, caring for me as well. So there's, there is a, a reciprocity. There's this mutual affection and uh, they recognize the work that I do for them. And uh, they, haven't, they have not failed in returning some of that uh, love or affection towards me. So I'm, I'm in a very good place right now. I'm very happy where I am. Um, and I'm in a good environment with good people. You know, what's interesting about that uh, neuropsychologically is that the higher you are on a, in a dominance hierarchy, and if you're the headmaster, you're, you're pretty high in your particular one, uh, the more your serotonin levels are stable and high, making it so that pleasures feel better and pains feel less painful. And so the fact that you're feeling good sounds, sounds exactly right. It sounds like things are going well. So I have I, I had a question about that. To take the metaphor of the sun... Yes. Um, and to understand it heliocentrically, as if your teachers were planets that revolved around you, that would suggest mm -hmm. that, say, the motive force for the universe came from you, or the guiding principle, or the sort of narrative, the mission mm -hmm. comes from you, uh, to put it in mythical terms. And so do you think that that's part of your meteoric rise as, a, as an administrator, or part of your, your charisma, or your particular gravity? that you have brought a mission as headmaster uh, that's, that's clearer or has a more organized form or a more pragmatic uh, essence to it. Yes, um, what is, yeah, yeah, what is the story you're telling to as, as headmaster? Good, good. No, that's an excellent question. I think that um, um, I, would, I would qualify your, your question just a little bit uh, and point out that I think what has led to my success, and I think that not just my success, but the success of any leader, is that they, although they embody a principle, um, mm. they, they are not themselves that principle. Uh, the, the moment you try to, say, eclipse the principle, then um, I, would, I, would, I think that's the beginning to the end of good leadership. Luciferian, you are the son that serves the father, and the father being the <laughs> the embodiment. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, something like that. So um, I'm trying to think here. Um, I had something on the tip of my tongue and I just lost it. I'm and sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, continue. Yeah, like what, that. No, no, no I'm So what you, were, what you were saying is that what you are is that you are in the embodiment and that you don't attempt to eclipse the principle. That's it, correct. Yeah, thanks. Plan. Thanks, Alex. So yes. uh, there is actually a, a, a passage and we were just talking about Plato, uh, Socrates, I, I believe it's in the uh, symposium, it's either in the symposium, um, he's talking about a priestess who's uh, taught him um, this mystery, the mysteries, the truth, right, the pursuit of the good. Um, he points out that the role of the teacher, and I think that he very much describes the role of, his, of a leader as well, because the teacher is a leader in his or her classroom, um, is to appeal to the senses of the student so the student is drawn to the teacher, but then a good teacher will take that and then draw that eros 
towards the good. So mm. the teacher's kind of a, a, a middleman, if you will, right? Uh, yes. he, sim he symbolizes the good, but it's not, that's right, a medium, but he's not the good itself. Ah, and so what then he does, and I think this is, this is essentially what um, Alan Bloom claims, but I, but I could be wrong here, but I think this is right in representing what you're saying, is that instead of taking credit for the principle which he is embodying as a good educator, the educator then points away from himself mm -hmm. at the ideal so that the, the young student doesn't just adore the teacher, but adores the principal and pursues it him himself. And that Correct. that would be the great failure of Alcibiades with Socrates, right? <laughs> yes. He falls in Absolutely. love with Socrates, but not yes. in love with the good. And mm -hmm. that's and that's his great Anakin like failure. Mm. <laughs> but you see the same thing in um, the Mino. Um, Mino falls in love with Gorgias, and Gorgias is a, is a charismatic leader, is the kind of leader that's bombastic, that will draw his students towards himself. So uh, Gorgias is more of the kind of leader that wants and needs a following, whereas Socrates is the kind of leader that uh, somehow he's, he's an equalizer, right? He, he is above his own students as the guide, but ultimately the purpose is for all of them in community to pursue that good to pursue the virtue. Um, so I find that very interesting, the, the distinction between the two, especially because nowadays that's not the focus of a lot of leadership books that we read today. No, and I think there's an interesting distinction between someone like a Gorgias and a Socrates. That insofar as Socrates embodies the Logos, he equalizes all in that all are subject mm -hmm. to the Logos and their reasoning. Uh, all can be accused of sloppy thinking and speaking, uh, very <laughs> yes. much legitimately on some level of analysis. But what Gorgias does is, as, a, as a sophist is he uses his capacity for speech, instrumental speech, legalistic, litigious, rationalistic um, um, speech, casuistic speech, to use yes. a good word, you levied against the Jesuits. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I was just going to say, the first true Jesuit right there. Right. And, um, and, um, but what Gorgias does is he uses this, this word in a way that we might say that lawyers who come out of uh, – postgraduate school with the highest starting salaries, uh, what they use their language for, or what Gorgias does is for power, acquisition of power, not necessarily to find truth, but mm. to acquire power. And of course, the argument in the Republic then becomes, well, don't, if you acquire the power, don't you get to make the truth? And that is very persuasive, but very different from what it is that Socrates seems to be doing because what Socrates yeah. seems to do is to say that regardless of how powerful you are, that doesn't change your relationship to the truth. Correct. <clears throat> correct. Correct. And um, I think that's one of the most effective ways of leading uh, for the reason that, and I remind my teachers of this all the time. And in fact, I remind myself of, of all the time. In fact, um, I, there's this uh, wonderful, and, and I know you're familiar with this uh, as a Latin scholar yourself, uh, when, when a good Roman general would come into the cities uh, in his triumphal ro uh, robes after a victory, uh, he had someone at his ear always reminding him that he was just a mere mortal. Um, and that's something to keep in mind, and I remind my teachers of, I will fail them. I will not always please them. I will make mistakes. But what keeps the ship, if you will, afloat, what keeps us moving in the right direction is that ultimately I am not the good itself. 
I might symbolize it as a, as a temporary leader, um, but we all strive for it in different forms and different capacities. Um, and it's a good leader who will be able to see that in their teachers and see how it is that they wish to pursue that good and try to create the conditions where they can do that uh, with greater ease at the school uh, level, as opposed to at a different job or different industry. And so you're a bit like Moses and you form a group pursuing a promised <laughs> land. Or a promised land being you all pursuing the, not a physical place, but the good or pr- producing the true kinder yes. garden where mm-hmm. cultivation of souls mm-hmm. can occur because they are, they are mimicking, which is, a, which is one of the greatest successes of humans that mm-hmm. we do better than other primates. We actually mimic each other extraordinarily well. Yes. And so mm-hmm. if your teachers are embodying virtues then what is it that your students will have access to imitate to imitating while also to virtues and if you're doing the same thing and i'm not suggesting some sort of trickle down formonomics but but the uh the psychobiology and is actually in on this Mm -hmm. um that if you comport yourself in a certain way those actions will catch on with those around you and this seems to be the point that dante makes in the inferno and in the paradiso that those can be ill actions defined as vicious or sinful, depending on tradition, or those mm-hmm. can be good actions, uh, upright, just. Uh, in fact, Maslow actually just defines righteous. them. Uh, righteous, right. Mm-hmm. Ones that put you in line with your family, your community, and your overall uh, population. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that you would point everybody like Apollo, the sun god, in the direction of the, uh, or orient them towards the good seems like the best thing that you can do. Um, and it makes me also want, want to, that makes me want to ask you, and I hadn't planned to ask you this, what do you do with those who go wayward, with those who seem to lose the vision of the good as, as a, 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 a principle? Can you see that happen? Can you see a teacher go dark, a teacher who no longer <laughs> wishes to do good or has given up because because you have to keep the reins as a teacher, right? If you don't keep them tight, you lose your whole effect. Mm-hmm. It's like a musician not holding, or like a violinist not holding their bow correctly. It's It, it can go disastrously very yeah. fast, or like yeah. the captain of a ship. It can capsize immediately. Have you, have you ever had to help somebody steer back uh, in the right mm-hmm. direction? Absolutely, but I would, uh, I, would, uh, I would use different language for that reason of because course, it's, sure. it's very easy... It's very easy to, um, so how, how can I put this? So the, the school has its own parameters. It's, it has what defines it as a school and sets it apart from a church. Uh, it sets it apart from a ministry and from um, other different kinds of fields. It's, so it's, but it's, those definitions are easily lost sometimes because as humans, we're also uh, impelled by our emotions. So um, I do, I mean, not only our emotions, but our backgrounds, if there's a religious background, if there's a background, uh, if, if, you know, growing up from poverty or um, coming from an affluent background, all of those things will have an influence in the way that I relate to my teachers. So there will be teachers who will disagree with me on, uh, say, for example, um, philosophic matters. Then those disagreements at a school are okay. 
because that's the type of institution we are. Now, I don't, I don't think that would work at a, ch at a church, especially a Catholic church, uh, where there are very defined doctrines and um, the, the word heretic is very poignantly used and appropriately used for those who disagree with the doctrine. Uh, whereas at, this, at the school, that wouldn't be the case. So where there is disagreement, that's invited and dialogue is encouraged. Now, where I see a teacher go astray, it would be in the practices or procedures or the vision that we have set as the standards for running the school the way that we think or the way that I, as a leader, think would be the most appropriate. When that, when that, that does happen, there is a, a process of correction. And if that doesn't, um, if the teacher decides that he does not want to abide by it, we call it buy-in. Now that's kind of the buzzword nowadays, is there buy-in from your teachers? Uh, then uh, we invite the teacher to find a school where he or she will be more in line with the vision that she, uh, he or she possesses at any given moment of time. Uh, so, so yes, I've had to do that. It's not, it's not always a fun and uh, pretty event, if you understand what I mean. I can imagine not. I mean, something about, I think, being a leader and something that I try and prepare my students who I hope to be leaders at some day. And that's an interesting thing. I hope for my students to become leaders. It's something I wish for them to aspire towards as I teach mm -hmm. them of the Odyssey. And of course, of, of one of the major mythological characters or set of characters are the roving rocks. And we studied the Odyssey together in graduate school and yes. parts of it in Greek. And those two creatures are Scylla and Charybdis. And Scylla comes from on high and Charybdis from below. And Scylla grab six men at a time, whereas Charybdis may suck down all the salt sea and your entire boat, though perhaps you could get by Charybdis if you knew the appropriate time to go past it. But that would be a fool's errand. And so as a, as a, as a leader, you have to make real decisions where there's going to be blood left on the table, where there, somebody's going to be hurt in some way, where both ways of looking at it are bad, but one is worse. And so that seems to be, those seem to be the real decisions, the non-video game decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that you bring up the Odyssey um, because Odysseus is uh, once again, another of those models that I would like to mimic using your word mimic. Um, and uh, I am, I'm, I'm glad you especially point that out because in that passage, it's perhaps one of the hardest things a leader can choose, which is, I might make the wrong choice and lose the life of a few of my men. Um, there is another passage that I find very interesting as well. It's when um, Odysseus and his men are stranded on the island where the, I think it's the, is it the cows of the sun god of Helios? Uh -huh. yeah. Exactly. And he has to find a way in his cunning to keep the men from eating the cows. And uh, he succeeds until he, as a leader, which is very interesting, why does he decide to leave his men on his own, on their own and uh, go on his own up to the mountain? So that's, uh, reading it from the point of view as a leader, you're thinking that's not what a leader should have done. Um, but then again, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eternal question. We don't know why right, he did it. Right. He, uh, he falls asleep then and he falls asleep right inside of Ithaca, right before the, his men open the bag of Iolus, which shoots them yes. all the way back to the island. There, there are real consequences for, for bad actions or bad choices. Yeah. So. Perhaps mm. suggesting that no matter how good a, te uh, a leader you are, you can't account for the choices of those under you. They're still mm. going to make their 
non-free yes. choices, yes. which will perhaps lead to their doom. I suppose that's what Zeus thinks. But now I want to ask you, so you, you mentioned this Plato, you mentioned this Odyssey by this Homer. Great books. <laughs> why, why great books to teach the young? Authorities. Why, why we have so many books these days and they're laminated and nice and they have bold print and they come with CD-ROMs or DVD-ROMs or just URLs at this point <laughs> and you can play apps yes. with them and, um, and there are all sorts of people who are educated in, by these same books with these same bold letters who, who take these uh, univariate statistics and say that's how the world is and why, why, why these old dusty tomes these irrelevant uh long ago passed by nonsense books why why these yeah i think we call them great books for the reason that they um unlike other books and i again i don't want to disparage uh, contemporary books i'm sure there are some good books out there <clears throat> i just haven't read them <laughs> you have other responsibilities that's right um <clears throat> But uh, these are the kinds of books that more, more, I would say, and I hate to use the word efficiently, but there is, um, there is a degree of, of efficiency that we need to, as, as a school, we need to keep our finger on, uh, that most efficiently draw the students to a view of the world that will expand the horizons. So they're, they're not just exposed to the tail end, say, of the Western tradition, which is a very materialistic, very much technologically driven uh, worldview, but they're also exposed to um, a worldview, which is what we'll, we'll be looking at when we go into Herodotus, right? That views the world as good, views the world as being full of truth, and uh, views the world as beautiful and purposeful, and there's an order. So Exposing the students to that entire trajectory from the beginning to the end is really uh, to give the students a holistic understanding of human history, of the world, and who they are, which I find lacking in books today uh, that are that's singularly uh, focus on just the experience of the students and where they're at in their own time. <clears throat> So I actually find contemporary books to do the opposite than what they intend to do. Um, they narrow the experience of his own place and time and uh, make, in my opinion, um, I'm going to use this word. I know it's a, it's a word that's thrown out a lot today. Uh, make bigots of the students because they cannot relate. And, and disorient uh, them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yes. Yeah, so that's so interesting to say that modern that a modern piece of literature that fails to give a an appropriate historical context because of course it can't and one should have been understood to have already acquired that historical mm. context. It's a very interesting way of reading it because I recently did hear a claim made that one studies history in order to understand oneself because since we exist not only in space but also in time as humans to see our progression and our changes over time shows us what is specific to us as a people, say in the West, politically and culturally and religiously and linguistically, but also what is general to all humans, to all structures yes. of humans and all cultures. And so we understand both our kinship with all humans, 
while also the specific differences that have made us more efficient and successful within certain parameters, say in health, science, technology, or uh, disease prevention, economically speaking, productionally speaking, you know, in several different spheres, if we consider the West in general and specifically the U.S. where you and I both live. And so, hmm. Yeah, there is a a push, and I think it's – it comes and goes. It um, it's not as strong as it used to be, but it, it the fact that it comes and goes makes me um, suspect that we'll we'll be seeing it rising again here pretty soon, which um, suggests well it doesn't suggest that's kind of a soft word. Um, it's more of a tyrannical movement, really. That's that says that students should only focus on those texts that are immediately relevant to them. So uh, how does that translate in practicality, in in the practical world? Well, uh, Hispanic children should only read texts with Hispanic protagonists. Um, And that's great. It's great for them to know that there are heroes uh, within their own cultures. But what I like about the Great Books program is that it really... Uh, stretches that narrowness and suggests to the Hispanic student, and I'm speaking specifically Hispanics because I am one, suggests to the Hispanic student that there are heroes in other cultures as well, not just my culture, not just in, um, you know, among my family or the people that look like me or speak like me. Um, And that not only does do heroes exist today, but have existed across time, and they're still possible to be heroes in the future. Uh, And I can be one of those. So that's why I think the Great Books program is actually expansive in that sense, and it's diverse, and it's open to um, appreciating humanity as a whole, as a a noble creature. Uh, Whereas this push, which is called progressive, which is called uh, liberating and enlightened, does the opposite. And so, so are you claiming that if I come from a different culture from the book I'm reading, I could actually stand to learn something from that culture? <laughs> that might be called true diversity of thought Absolutely. because I might recognize not only what is different between them in terms of, say, if I'm reading Homer, religion, language, part of the world, way of life, even way they poop would have been different from how I do it, given we have access to toilets, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> um, but the, it's interesting that you say that because what it makes me think of is that these great books, what, what it does is that they, they teach that this narrative from the West is not just a narrative of, like, say, a, a specific person with a specific conscious agenda, but rather more a progression of a specific um, skill set or set of values that has made people successful in their exploration and securing of that which is theirs throughout the world. It's almost as if, and perhaps I read this um, due to my, my work with Mr. West Chance and our, our, our trying to unpack the, the shape and the structure of stories and all mythic narratives, but mm-hmm. that it's almost as if the study of the West is the study of the progression of the logos in the world or the embodiment of the consciousness of man, the specific difference between man and all the animals, that which makes him appropriate to rule represented Mm. by the crown or the halo the golden Mm. mark of divinity or wholeness of perspective that a human can have uh that an animal cannot and so if one can recognize that movement throughout history 
could not say somebody produced that in the world today. Could not, like you were saying, any young student embody the logos and therefore embody the good, become, become a hero today. It seems as if the idea of the great books is not to throw the good back into the past and say things used to be good, but they're mm -hmm. terrible now. Uh, like some idea that the age of gold was long past would never return. That was never the narrative, right? The age never. of gold was always in the past and in the future, whether it be a pagan or a Christian idea. There's Eden in the past, there's heaven or celestial paradise in the future. There's, there's, uh, uh, there's a giant flood in the past for the Greeks, and there's still the wide aisle in the future, depending on if it's not Homer. But well, so that's, you know, that, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, but just that they're, the, the idea of the great books is that they connect young would-be mm -hmm. heroes who are alive today with the heroes of the past. They don't create oppressors. They don't create people mm -hmm. with specific small modern politics which constrain their view of the world and poison their thinking and, and speaking, but rather make somebody open to the light of truth, which comes from no particular voice and no particular creed but speaks through all people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes absolutely and uh, uh, perhaps something good uh, important to point out as well is that this uh, what we call a tradition and i think that's uh, that's a word that scares a lot of people when they hear the word tradition but what we call this uh, say this movement this progression throughout history it, ha it hasn't always been in agreement with itself and uh, that's important to point out because the one of the main attacks that uh, we'll get from uh, people who don't understand what we're doing is that we're indoctrinating the students. It's as if we have a set of beliefs that we're making sure that the students just wholly imbibe and not question. No, in fact, uh, if there is a principle, it would be the, the one that suggests that we ought to question what we're being uh, taught. We ought to question what we're receiving. We, we ought to make a, it something new. Um, and as opposed to what our enlightenment, um, I guess, what our enlightenment uh, ancestors, right, did, which they, yes, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So they, they totally right. repudiated it. So again, that's just, that, a, that's just evidence that even someone as Kant, right, Immanuel Kant, is part mm -hmm. of a tradition that repudiates parts of the tradition. Uh, there is, there's not just a, there's not complete agreement. It's not a, it's not a religious creed, as you pointed out. I thought that was good. Yeah, and I mean Kant himself. You're reading the Lutheran. You read Catholics like Saint Thomas Aquinas Absolutely. and Dante. Uh, you mm -hmm. read Milton himself was a Protestant. You read Homer, who's a pagan, and Aristotle. And just, just an interesting idea about that indoctrination is that you're teaching the absolute wrong people in order to indoctrinate, because. Aristotle teaches people the mechanisms by which to disagree yes. in a free society. Mm -hmm. He teaches how to deliver logic and how to deliver uh, oratory to, to crowds of people. And you can access this information freely. It seems as if the only way to indoctrinate now is to fail to listen to others. Mm -hmm. And thus you indoctrinate yourself by calcifying your, your ears and your mind against additional learning. It's as if it is an, an ultimate Luciferian act in the, in the Danteistic way of totally shutting oneself off in a cavern below the earth and impotently causing the ice, which one is, is 
is surrounded by, which keep one from uh, the reality around one and the warmth of compassion. Uh, it's as if that ice is created from their own tears and they're blowing their own wings. It's as if the great books and the great thinkers who are disagreeing with each other and one up in each other and coming from different cultures and language and <laughs> yeah. religious backgrounds mm -hmm. and different mm -hmm. uh, economic statuses as mm -hmm. well and, and totally different nations and cultures and languages, if I didn't already say that. Yeah. Uh, it's as if what they're teaching you how to do is to both learn from them and yeah. disagree from them. They are trying mm -hmm. to, as Dante achieves from Virgil, finally yes. at the end of the Purgatorio, is to free your will, cool. like our college St. John said, to make free men from boys by means of books and a balance. It's great. It's even great to, uh, to read accounts on how these thinkers themselves um, disliked other thinkers. So, for example, Milton never mentions Dante. I mean, there's never even... Never. Never at all. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. And he lived in Florence. And he lived in Precisely. Florence. I think, I think about that all the time. I teach them both. Yeah. And I always, it's incredible that, yeah, Milton just sort of completely passes over Dante. And there's a limited scholarship on the relationship between the two of them, yeah. which is, is so uh, so interesting. And then you have um, right, yeah. Hobbes and Descartes. Um, they just uh, they just had a they would have a visceral reaction to each other. They just could not even be in the same room with each other. It's just uh, they they had such opposite conclusions to the same question um, that at the core of their being they couldn't even tolerate each other. <laughs> so I mean, this is. Uh, this is the way it is in what we call the great books. And we, um, it's a great example to our students that uh, what we're, we're not asking of them, we're not, what we're asking is not automatons. We're asking deep, serious thinking. Uh, we're asking them to uh, really look down into the core of their being and ask the question, why am I here? Uh, is there a purpose to life? Can I be heroic? Uh, and what I see a lot in uh, contemporary texts, especially texts for children, is that they're not provided that source from which they can draw the idea that they can be heroes as well, except in comic books. But, you know, to be a hero in a comic book, you have to be stung by a bee or bit by some kind right. of insect. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it's interesting because I... I, I... I see that it seems what you're saying is if we wish to maintain a free society, the best mechanism by which we can do that is to generate free individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a free individual is one who can question, question his underlying assumptions and therefore agree or disagree with them and thus maintain them or change them as necessary. And that seems to be what the freedom of speech to talk to those around you enables in the democratic process and the sharing of the logos and shaping community yes. through the shared conversation yes. that we have. And, and what's interesting about those comics is this is something I teach the students when I teach them how to interpret symbols mm -hmm. is that um, these two, that they're the most incredible creatures that have ever existed. Not something in a comic book or a video game that yes. look at the, look at the primates, look at the gorillas. They can't do anything that we can do. They can't type a number. They can't speak. They can't enjoy a symphony. They can't produce a symphony. They can't use technology. It's like, no, you are the finest creature to have ever existed in the finest generation of creatures ever to have existed in the most, in the wealthiest, most prosperous country ever to have existed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not some comic book hero is incredible. You're incredible. 
And the second thing about that is that these mutants in these comics and stuff, they represent what our students actually are. These people with incredible potentials, with yes. creative potential to, to do unique things in the world. It's like students, don't wait for a radioactive spider to bite you. That's an anomalous idea. Pursue yes. your creativity, your talent. Pursue what you are meant for. You have a place in the world like the ants in a colony. We too are a species. And that's what I think the great books teach you. You have a telos. You have a meaning. Mm -hmm. I just I, I do want to say real fast that um, I'm not trying to disparage comic books I think comic books are great <laughs> I want to choose and if I had a choice between comic books and uh, a lot of the contemporary books that students are reading today if great books were not an option then I would definitely encourage comic books I think that they do have a place in the imagination of children um, and they do uh, function in many ways like great books um, or fairy tales uh, used to function in the past. I don't think that they, uh, they have the same effect. I don't think they're as effective, again, the word effective, um, as the great books can be in developing not just the soul, but the skills of comprehension and um, good, good rational thinking. But I do think they have a place in forming the character uh, or the, the soul of the child into that pursuit of being heroic. Again, uh, most of them, however, as you pointed out, they, they do involve some kind of chance happening, some kind of mutation, some kind of, as opposed to a deliberate choice of the will to be better. Um, Though I do suppose that in some, I mean, I, Captain America and, uh, and Batman are the exception. We like them because of that. But perhaps that's <laughs> it. Uh, there is also recent research in the psychological circle suggesting that creativity is essentially mostly genetic and so the idea that one is bitten by a radioactive spider does seem true and anybody that knows anybody who's an excellent musician even though it requires lots of practice or anybody who's a tremendous artist visually speaking yes, knows so something i am definitely about endorse spider-man no doubt about it <laughs> yeah so so my last question before we go and hopefully we have many of these conversations yes, and i've yet to even i'm so rude i haven't told anybody that you are intending to start your own podcast which I, I, I can't wait to hear what yes. the title will be, what the focus, and hopefully mm -hmm. at some point I can be on it. I just had the chance to be on Wes's podcast, which he, he formally said that he received the motivation to do that for me. And so that was a really cool moment for me. And so that'd be really cool to be able to be on your podcast as mm -hmm. well. Um, but um, so before we were, when we were setting up this conversation, you know, we were wheeling and dealing and what are we going to talk about and when – uh, you, you wanted to talk about Herodotus, the father of history, the, the father of lies. And so what, <laughs> what was it about Herodotus? And we can actually get into a passage of his in one of these next conversations. But what, why, uh, why Herodotus? Is it because he's the arch figure of tradition, the rock upon which Western history is founded? Or what, what was it that drew you to him that, wanted, that you wanted to speak about him publicly? Like yes, this. so it was actually something um, a little more humble than um, kind of a lofty ideal. It was a quote. So uh, as, as someone who, as a foreigner who's actually come into this country um, and is now living here, got married with an American woman, very happy, have American children, um, I'm, I'm so fascinated by uh, colloquialisms, right, from these pithy phrases that Americans use to express a lot 
um, and I'm fascinated by them because they don't come easy to me. I really have to work at trying to get, um, trying to pass as a authentic American person or to sound oh. like one at least. So one of these was as rich as Croesus. And uh, I came across it, I can't, I can't recall exactly where, uh, but I thought to myself, having gone to a classical school, having been classically educated, um, I, I thought to myself, oh, wow, I don't hear that said often anymore. And if I did say it, if I were to uh, use it in a conversation, say, I wonder if people would just stare at me uh, without any idea as to what I meant by it or what the background story is. And... Um, I wondered how many people had actually read Herodotus or knew that it actually comes from a story that Herodotus tells. And uh, that drew me, uh, having, having read the story a long time ago and having, having read it at St. John's as well, uh, that drew me back to Herodotus. And it's been a text that I've been reading uh, over the past few months uh, this last year. So that's why I wanted to address and talk about Herodotus um, um, w with an emphasis, of course, on the idea of wisdom and how it's no longer what we pursue at schools, which is something that's really close to my heart. Um, so, yeah, I think I've, I think so I've made sense. Hopefully I made sense. Yeah. And per, yeah, of course, of course, it, it generally makes more sense when you hear it as an audience member than it does when you speak it, I've found, when I listen <laughs> to myself. But so, so I suppose the, the great books for you then are like the richest of Croesus or an expression that once conveyed such meaning that because there's so much meaning, so much orienting power, so much, oh, such a way to shine the meaning of one's life onto one's existence that we should not let the great books and the education they have to provide us go the way of expressions like the riches of Croesus. Yes. But make them, yeah, make them just as, <laughs> not common, but robust yes. as, support, I, you know, uh, common or proper nouns. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps. yeah, if you think of these phrases, uh, these colloquialisms, sayings um, as having a life source, um, I wonder how many of these are just going extinct, if you will, for the reason that we've uh, no longer uh, have a connection to these texts or these books anymore. So that even the word itself is, is kind of a dead body just coming out of your mouth and people just looking at it. Is, how, where did that come from? <laughs> yes. Greatest mythological traditions represent the decay of culture um, as having sort of an old decayed king or the body or husk of the dead king that people Excellent. are still living wow. on. And then that would be what language without thought would become more slogans, which actually comes from something Scottish, which means something like battle cry of the dead, Jordan Peterson teaches us. Mm. And so the idea that the idea, uh, the idea that, well, so, and also we discard useless things all the time, music tools that no longer have value. Like how many VCRs yes. do we have now or record players, even though they're vintage. And so much of that happens with expressions and language as well. But what we may lose with these, these great books is not only sharpening tools, but larger structures yes. of higher value that offer us a stability of culture and of insight into each other, which we may only recognize the absence of after they are gone. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, there is hope. I, I'm, I tend to be an optimist 
uh, optimistic mm. <laughs> person, there is hope. There is still something that links us to that, to those books, links us to those ideas, because we're still using the uh, these sayings. Not all of them, but we're using some of them. In fact, I did a quick search to see uh, where else is this as rich as as rich as Creases being used, and I found out that there was a rapper who, uh, in one of his lyrics, uh, included it, and it made me wonder again. Okay, so. This is a um, this is a great way to express a lot of meaning, deep meaning, in such a short saying. Uh, how much of that is actually being conveyed in this uh, in, in the lyrics? Um, and and it it does. I think that as long as we are continually using these words, we're still or these sayings, uh, we are somehow keeping that alive. But I I don't know. It might there might be a time. Um, what do you call it? A, a, a time associated to it, associated to it, an expiration date um, associated to it. And uh, it would be a pity if we did lose um, a saying that is as uh, significant as, as rich as creases. So I would love to explore that with you, um, Alex, um, if you if you have the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that sounds like it sounds like you're already answering yes to a question I intend to ask right now. Can we have you back soon, Mr. Oscar Ortiz? Absolutely. You, you, you can count on it. Well, you'll, you can consider me as rich as Croesus and all of our listeners as well. If you keep coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming by. And I, I can't wait to hear how your podcast progresses. And I have many, many, many I have a cornucopia of questions remaining That's for it. you. And, um, and I'll be sharing this with all of our friends and everybody else we know. And hopefully they have questions and take some comfort from your voice and your leadership and your guidance, just as your teachers and your students do. Thank and you very your family much. as well. I appreciate the time and the invitation. And I look forward to doing this again. I can't wait. Until next time. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.